Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seat, you'll find today's text on page 578. Page 578 of the black Bibles that are provided. We will be considering the, 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 well, actually a very large passage of Scripture, much longer than what we normally do, but there's a reason for that, and you'll see as we proceed through it. Acts chapter 6, now normally we read through the entirety of the passage, but because we're covering almost two chapters, I'm going to kind of give you some summaries from time to time, and I would encourage you to just sit down sometime this week and read all of chapters 6 and 7. Most of chapter 7 is a sermon, and so um, it's, going to, it's going to kind of stay as one unit, and we'll treat it that way, but... Um, the last part of 6, verse 8, is what we're considering this morning through the end of chapter 7, or nearly the end of chapter 7. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider this passage of Scripture. Father, we love you. We are thankful for the time that we have to gather. We're thankful for your word that teaches us. And Lord, as we come before it this morning, may we be humbled, recognizing that we have no means by which to know you, to follow you, to obey you, except that you and your mercy have given us instruction. And so, Lord, we approach your word humbly this morning, asking you to teach us. May the Holy Spirit teach us through your word. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Again, 578, if you're using one of the Black Bibles, we'll be considering chapters 6 and 7 of Acts. At North Hills, it is our custom to make our way through a passage of Scripture using a philosophy that some have called expository preaching. The, word, the root of the word is to expose, and that's exactly what we're trying to do this morning, is to understand a text of Scripture and then to apply that Scripture to ourselves. We are making our way progressively through the book of Acts right now. We have made our way from the very early days of the church, the formation of the church, into now a section where we are beginning to see persecution arise against the church. And we're seeing the church's response to that persecution, which was exactly the opposite of what the authorities had hoped. You remember this? As the authorities increasingly opposed the church, the gospel actually became more powerful and began to go out in a more profound way. We now come to chapters 6 and 7, where we have the opportunity to watch the first Christian martyrdom. If you know the name Stephen in the book of Acts, he is almost synonymous in our minds with martyrdom because he was the first of, of the believers who was killed for his faith. And that's the section of Scripture we are in. The, this passage teaches us some, some very important things about the gospel. And as Stephen lives in the light of the gospel and then dies in faithfulness to the gospel, we learn something about a life that makes a difference, a life that counts. Make your life of value by making it about the gospel. Let me say that again. Make your life of value by making it about the gospel. 
What if you knew that today was your last day on earth? What if you got a, a memo? You got an email? You got something that told you, it's official, today's your last day on earth. How would you spend that last day? I'm sure many things come to your mind. Many of you think about what's important in life. Well, family and friends, I would, I would spend the day making sure that I, I, I reconnected with my family and friends, letting them know how much I love them. Maybe there's something that you've always wanted to do. You've always wanted to jump out of an airplane, or you've always wanted to bungee jump, or you've always wanted to go whitewater rafting. You say, well, it's my last day on earth. I'm going to make sure that I do that. You know, very few people know when it's their last day on earth. Stephen is facing the very real prospect, the very real threat of having his life snuffed out for the cause of Christ. And how does he choose to spend those final moments? He chooses to spend it the same way he spent his life, for the gospel. And so the challenge for us is to make our life count by making it about the gospel. And that starts with a life that is lived commensurate with the gospel, a life that is lived consistently with the gospel. And that's really what we know to be true about Stephen, right? You remember the, the previous passage that we looked at last week where the first deacons were, the, the first deaconship was established? The first deacons were, were given to the local church. Pastor Dan addressed this last week and reminded us that there were some, there were some struggles in the early church, and, and many of them were, were kind of these ethnocentric struggles. Like, how do we get along with people from, from different cultures, from different backgrounds, with different priorities, and, and, and we're getting overlooked, and we're not getting our fair shake, and the deacons were an attempt to, to answer that. And so we see Stephen among that list that we considered last week, of those servants, remember that's what the word deacon means, those servants who were established in the early church. So back up to, to verse 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, brethren, this is the instruction of the apostles, you remember from last week, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. And it goes on to name them. One of them is Stephen. So when we, seek at, when we see Stephen, what do we know about him? Well, he's a man of good reputation. The church, the church knew, at large knew about who he was and what his character was. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. And he was a servant, right? It says at the end of verse 3 there that we may appoint over this business. What business? Well, if you go up to the very end of verse 2, what do you see? The business of, of serving deaconing tables. I had someone tell me one time about this passage. Well, we don't really know. I mean, they're, it's, not, they're not, it's not said that they were deacons in chapter 3. Actually, the verb is there, right? They're not called deacons yet, but the, the verb is there. They were deaconing. That's the, that's the word there in verse 2. What else do we know about Stephen? Well, look down at verse 8. It says, Stephen was a man full of faith. If you're using a different translation, you might see the word grace appear there. This, this grace, this idea of, of a charm of character. Again, goes back to that idea of a good reputation, well spoken of, well thought of. And, it says in verse 8, of power. But we see the power demonstrated in this passage. But look with me down now at verse 15. 
Stephen, who's facing the council, they're looking steadfastly at him. It says they saw his face as the face of an angel. So, man, so Stephen was a man known to be a man of character. He was a man who had, had a good reputation. Now, now, like all believers, he was not perfect, but he was known to be of reliable character. He was a man of grace. He was gracious, he was, he was kind, he was busy about the business of serving others. You know, he was the kind of guy that you, you wanted to be around. He was, a, he was a caring man, he was a good man, he was a man of character. And so because of that, his message is compelling. Because it is backed up with a, a life that testifies to the gospel that he declared. Notice back up to verse 10 with me. It says that those he was speaking to, those he was giving the message of the gospel to, were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen gave credence to the gospel because of the life that he lived. And the reason that his, his message was so powerful, and the reason, yea, even that his death proves to be so powerful to the church is because of the life that he lived. Stephen didn't decide to start living for the gospel three days before he died. Stephen had a lifetime that testified to the gospel. C.S. Lewis, in his great work, Mere Christianity, says this, When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Our testimony before others matters immensely. Now, please don't misunderstand. This is not putting on a mask and, and pretending like we have no, no problems, no foibles, no mistakes. In fact, part of being a genuine testimony is the humility to admit our own faults and admit the areas in which we are growing. But we must strive to be people of, of character, People who others can look to and say, you know, in my workplace, so-and-so is an example of what, the, of what an employee should be. In my neighborhood, this family is, is an example of, of what I think of as a, as a good Christian. It is immensely important how we live our life before others. So I would just challenge us. We ought not live by the fear of man. At the same token, we ought to be as winsome as we can be, as, as kind as we can be. We ought to make it our habit to do for others, to serve others, to be, to be respectful of others. Some, some, uh, some Christians have the, have the flawed notion that, well, I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to do my thing. Let the chips fall where they may. Well, certainly, we shouldn't live by the fear of man. But the fact is that we ought to give a lot more care for how we live before others, how we care for others. People will notice. People will pay attention. Are we reflecting Christ well? People will notice and give a hearing to the gospel. The gospel will be more powerful. It will go forth more clearly as we live consistent with the gospel that we declare. Sometimes there seems to be a transition, or a dichotomy rather, in people's minds between serving in the church and outreach. Have you, have you ever noticed that? 
Sometimes there's this attitude, well, there's, there's people that serve the body of Christ, they're faithful in the church, they're serving in the church, and then there's others that are, that are really reaching out to the world. Well, it's interesting that, that Stephen's life does not show us that dichotomy. I mean, here's one who is actively serving in the church. He is known in the church to have a, a good reputation, a man of good character. He's, his life is wrapped up in the church life, yet what we see about him is that he is a faithful proclaimer. He is a faithful preacher of the gospel. There's not this dichotomy in Stephen's life between serving in the church and, and reaching others. In fact, the reason all of chapter 7 happens is precisely because of his personal witness, right? I mean, he is testifying day by day in the court of the, of the temple, and that is not well received. All of this incident comes about because Stephen was also faithfully given the gospel to those who are without. And so there's some lessons in that for us. It's not either or. It's not one or the other. We ought to be serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It ought to be important to us that we are involved in our local assembly. But let us not be people who are cut off from others, that we have this kind of cloistered mentality, that we, we hunker down in our little bunker and we don't reach out to the outside world. Furthermore, we already said Stephen was well thought of. He had, he had a good reputation. He was a man of character. And we ought to strive to be as winsome as possible as give, when giving the gospel. But don't assume that just because you're striving to have good character, you're striving to be considerate of others, that you don't also have the obligation of being bold. Stephen was definitely bold. And along that same line, don't assume that no one will be offended by your message, that some might even be put off by that boldness. Stephen, who was full of grace, full of wisdom, received a very harsh reception from some. And this is what we see really in chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is an entire message. So it starts off in verse 1, the high priest, right? He's called before this same Sanhedrin that, that uh, Peter in the last few chapters has been called before and Jesus before that. The same high priests, the same rulers, the same religious establishment. They're called before, as it were, the temple court. And they ask him this question, are these things so? Well, Stephen, not inclined to miss an opportunity, launches into a sermon in verse 2. And that sermon goes all the way, almost to the end of chapter 7. So in verse uh, 53, he wraps up the, the sermon. And you thought I preached long. So Stephen really is taking the history of Israel and using it expositionally. He is really taking the history of Israel and he is unpacking it and unfolding it to make his central point. Now the interesting thing that happens in preaching is I will sometimes approach a text of Scripture thinking I know what it's about. And as I study it through the week, what I learn is that's not really the main point. This is actually one of those passages. 
that as I approached it, I thought he's making a certain emphasis. And as I studied it throughout the week, what I learned was that, that my, my thinking needed to shift a little bit about the emphasis of the text. And that's really what we ought to be doing as we study texts of Scripture, right? We ought to say, not what, not what do I think about the text, but what is the text telling me? Right? What is the main point that Stephen is driving at? Now, I approached it with this attitude that, that Stephen was really articulating and explaining the providence of God, the sovereignty of God throughout the history of Israel. Well, that is definitely in the text. I mean, that is definitely present there. You can see this progression of how God has done a work in the history of Israel. That is, that is definitely present there. But, but Stephen is doing something more. Stephen is actually using the history of Israel to preach a gospel sermon. He's actually taking what has happened and the Israel's response to show the need for a Savior, his message is really about Jesus. Now, he doesn't get to that to the very end, and when he does make that point, right? he's doing it deductively, or indu- inductively, rather, right? and when he gets to the end and he makes the point, that is not well received, and they take him out and stone him. We'll see that next week. But what he's doing is he's developing the need for Jesus. He's showing the gospel even by preaching the history of Israel. Now, how does he do that? Stephen is knocking the props out from what the Jewish people, by and large, were trusting in. The things that they thought important, the things that they thought precious, namely the promised land, the Mosaic law, and the temple. You see, the most insidious lies are ones that look most like the truth. You see, it's easier to to substitute something that's good for something that that is true. The things that are associated with God are the things that we're most inclined to trust in instead of trusting in Christ. So how does he do that? Well, he, he helps them to understand, first of all, that you cannot trust the blessings of God. Now, that may seem strange to you that we say, don't trust the blessings of God. But think about it. God gives us good gifts, but those gifts are not to be looked to as the source. I mean, this is basically what idolatry is, right? When we take a gift of God and we set it up in a place of God as a substitute... Now, how did the Jewish people do this? It was very common in the Jewish way of thinking to to think that they had special spiritual privileges because they lived in the promised land. They lived in Palestine. That was was God's promised land. So, so, well, look look at God's favor on us. We, We are special because we live in the promised land. And because of this value that they saw in the land, that it, it, it kind of pushed out the need for the work of a Messiah in Jewish minds. In fact, their hopes for the Messiah were what? That he would come and overthrow Rome so that they could have their land back and have full control. You see, that, that a lot of, of faith, a lot of dependence was wrapped up in that geography, that spot on the map. And so Stephen makes the argument that they're misguided to be trusting in a land. God's God's not about just 
a piece of property. How does he do this? Notice with me chapter, I'm in chapter 7 now. I'm in, I'm in the beginning of Stephen's sermon. And notice what he says in verse 2. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. What's it say? When he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. Now, that, that, that may seem minor, but what is he saying? God blessed Abraham. Abraham was, was blessed before he ever got to the promised land. And in fact, he goes on in verse 4. He came out of the land of the Chaldees and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So Abraham got here, but verse 5, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot. So he lived here, but it wasn't his yet. He didn't possess the land. And so Stephen's point is that God blessed Abraham even though he didn't inherit the land yet. It would be his children, his children's children, and on down the line that would inherit that promised land. God blessed Abraham. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews, why did God bless Abraham? Abraham, when he was called to go, went by, by faith. Right? So it's not about the land. It's not about the blessings that you enjoy from God. It's about the Savior. It's about faith in Christ. I remember a few years ago when I traveled to the Bahamas for a mission trip. The Bahamas actually has in their, in their charter, their governmental charter, that they are a Christian nation. And it's really interesting to talk to people, to share the gospel with people, because again and again, people would, when we would ask them about, in some way, shape, or form, we would ask them about their spiritual walk, about their, their salvation, about whether they knew for sure that they were on their way to heaven, any question along that line, if they ran back to, well, I live in a Christian nation. I mean, it's part of our charter. It was very much the attitude of the Jews. Well, we are, we are God's people because we're sitting on God's promised land. We are, we are in the land. These are the blessings that God has given to us. And I would just say before we move on that there are probably many Americans who think that way as well. Now, we're not a Christian nation. Some say we are. The fact is we are a nation that was founded by people that had a Judeo-Christian ethic. But we mustn't trust in even a good heritage, a, a good land on which we live. We mustn't entangle our relationship, or thinking about our relationship with God with a relationship with a, a certain piece of real estate. We learn further from Stephen's message as he points them to Christ that they are not to and we are not to trust the law of God. Now, the law was given by God. It was to be obeyed. But the Jewish people needed to understand that the law did not provide the saving power. The ultimate hope was in the Savior, not in a list of rules, as good as those rules might have been. But, unfortunately, many of the people trusted in the law, a law, in fact, that they didn't even really keep. 
The law revealed their rebellious hearts, and this is exactly the point that Stephen makes in verses 39 and 40. Notice it with me. Whom our fathers would not obey, speaking to Moses, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so, so he actually chronicles this whole history of idolatry this whole history of rebellion against the very law that God has given. And he does it to to indict the religious leaders. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, he is standing before the Sanhedrin, this august body of the religious leaders of God's chosen people. And he's basically wagging his finger at them and saying, this law that you profess to believe in, you don't even obey it. You're rebellious, and which is actually the point that he makes at the very end of the message, which really raises their ire. You know, the temptation to trust in a law, a God-given law, a man-given law, a, a list of rules, a, a conformity, boy, that is an insidious temptation. And it's a temptation that we're all prone to. We are all prone to be legalists. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do, and let's be done with it. Like, tell me the the, the hoops that I have to jump through to get close to God, and I'll do those things. Tell me what I'm supposed to eat and what I'm not supposed to eat, and I'll do it. And the reason that we love legalism, the reason our hearts are all prone to legalism, is because it's just so easy. And it taps right into our pride. I can do that. I can do that. I can not do that. And now look at how much better I am than everybody else. Boy, and what does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say? It is not by works of righteousness which we are done, we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. I just put in Romans 3, sorry. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Not of works, what, lest anyone should boast, because that's exactly what we would do if we were saved by our works. We'd say, well, I did this, and I did this, I didn't do that. I'm good. And that runs counter to grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is favor that we do not deserve. And when we are saved, we are saved by God's grace. He gives us the very thing that we do not deserve, the very thing that we did not earn. Stephen makes this case. Look, you're in rebellion. You can't even keep the law that you, that you look to. And in so doing, he's pointing out their need for a Savior. And this is why Paul says in the New Testament that the law is the taskmaster, right, that brings us to Christ. And this is exactly the way that Stephen is using it as well. And so when you share the gospel with others, when you think about your own salvation, do you look to what I've done? Or do you look to Jesus Christ? who alone is able to save. We also not, knocks the props under a third thing, and he kind of slaughters another sacred cow because he now goes after the temple and reminds them that they must not trust the place of God. So in verses 48 through, nine, uh, 48 through 50, he, he, teach, he, he reminds them about the fact that God is not restricted to a place. 
Now, the temple was highly venerated. It was highly thought of. It was highly esteemed by the Jews. And they thought, hey, God is with us because we have the temple. And so Stephen actually cites the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 66, beginning in our text in verse 48. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet has said, here's his quote from Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? I'm the creator. I don't need you to build me a building. I will not be contained by a building, God says. And so when everyone in the Jewish culture looked to this temple as the, the pinnacle of close, being close to God, Stephen comes along and says, it's just a building. Now this is important because mankind, who, who we're religious at heart, has a tendency to trust other things. Places of worship, religious trappings, great leaders, a good heritage, on and on and on the list could go of the things that we are tempted to trust in. And Stephen points out for his audience and for us today that Jesus alone is able to save. He's pointing them to, to the importance of, of the work of Christ. So as he focuses on this temple, my, came to my mind the, uh, the fire that happened in the Notre Dame Cathedral some, some weeks ago. And it is no doubt sad. It is tragic that a beautiful edifice of tremendous historical value uh, suffered that kind of, of harm. But the French nation, which is largely secular and the world at large, failed to recognize the greater tragedy that the true worship of God is long lost. And in the end analysis, it's a beautiful building. It reflects wonderful, wonderfully on the history of architecture, but it is still but a building. That's kind of what, that's kind of what Stephen's coming along saying. Guys, it's, it's a building. Yes, we meet with God there. Yes, we have wonderful blessings, but it is just a building. And aren't we all inclined to do that? To substitute the religious symbol for the reality. And that's what the Jewish people were doing. Stephen is pointing them back to the one who's come to be their Savior, the Messiah, who can, who can truly, truly save. And so as we look at Stephen's message, even just kind of in summary this morning, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in? What are you trusting in this morning? What am I trusting in? Are, are we trusting in God's blessings, God's good gifts? From time to time, I'll talk to people and I'll ask them, do you know for sure your sins are forgiven and that you are on your way to heaven? Oh, let me tell you how God has worked in my life. Okay, tell me. Great, I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to hear your testimony of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. I, like, lay it on me. Let's go. And they begin to tell me that, about blessing after blessing from God. And at some point I realize I'm not hearing faith and repentance here. 
I'm hearing a litany of ways God has blessed. Well, guess what? I'm glad. I rejoice with you. And I'm even, I'm even further glad that you recognize that those gifts come from God. That wasn't my question. How do you know that your sins are forgiven and that you're on your way to heaven? You see, there's a difference between trusting in Christ and looking to the wonderful blessings that he gives us as some sort of a token that we're good. See, God gave me this and this and this and this, so I must be good, right? That's prosperity gospel. That says that that being right with God is synonymous with the cookies that he gives out. Well, guess what? Jesus said he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Has God blessed you? Absolutely. Does every person in this room, whether you're right with God, whether you you are are, are saved or not, do you have wonderful stories about the way that God has intervened in your life? I'll bet you do. But don't trust those. Trust Christ. I wonder for us this morning, are we inclined to trust in other blessings from God? Riches, prosperity, pedigree. I'm from a good background. I'm from a good family. If you've spent very much time sharing the gospel with people, you've heard all of these things. Well, you know, I I was raised in a a good family. Uh, God's blessed me, so I I must be okay. National identity. I wonder this morning how many are trusting in in a religious form, a a law, whether it's a a man-made religion or or some some, uh, takeoff from the, the Mosaic law. You're looking to what you do, what you don't do for favor with God. I wonder this morning, is there anyone that's looking to religious trappings, a good church, a Christian school? being part of an ornate religious environment. My friends, a beautiful religion doesn't save. A good family doesn't save. A good church doesn't save. Faith in Jesus Christ alone saves. We need a Savior. And so Stephen doesn't leave it there at the theoretical, does he? I mean, he just has to go a little bit further. I mean, Stephen, can't you just leave it there and not apply the sermon? I mean, come on. Just leave it there and you're okay. But no, no, he doesn't do that. Notice with me the end of, towards the end of chapter 7 and verse 51. (laughs) You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, really, did you need to go there, Stephen? I mean, come on, couldn't you just, just leave it alone? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So you murdered the one who came to save you. Well, I guess the temple was supposed to be a safe space. And he forgot to give his trigger warning because that set him off. And we'll see next week what happened. But here's the thing. Stephen brought the message home. He took the gospel and he applied it to his audience. 
He was not afraid. He was a gracious man. He was a wise man. He was a good man, but he was not afraid to apply the truths of the gospel. All these things that the Jewish people were trusting in. If you spend very long talking to people about faith and repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you'll come across all of these things. And so this message is twofold. It's a message for us to search our own hearts. In what ways do we trust in the wrong things? In what ways are, is our faith in that which is futile and fleeting? But then as we apply the gospel graciously to others, as, as Stephen did, let, may we also be bold as he was in making the application that trusting in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in Jesus Christ alone means that trusting in something else is flawed. It's wrong. It's futile. It's ultimately trusting in ourselves. And so Stephen made his life count. Even in his final sermon, even in his fleeting days, he made his life of value because he, he had lived the gospel and then he had, had preached the gospel and now he applied the gospel. May we be people who faithfully do that as well. May you and I make our lives of value by making our lives about the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word. We pray that you would continue to apply it to our hearts. Even now, as we take a few moments to reflect on what we have learned this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. I'm going to give you a few moments to remain bowed before the Lord, to confess sin, to ask for His strength in changing.